Hello and welcome to the Ram Gad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economu, Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui, and I am joined today by Michelle McLean, Director of Maui County's Department of Planning. Hello, Michelle. Hey, Jason. So, Michelle, we're going to start off with a really easy question. What does the Department of Planning do? That can best be answered by explaining our four divisions. We have a long-range division, a current planning division, a plan implementation division, and a zoning administration and enforcement division. So we'll start with long-range. Our long-range division puts together our community plans, and right now they're in the thick of um, the community plan advisory committee meetings for West Maui. So that's the beginning of the community plan process with a community group appointed by the council and the mayor. Um, and they will start the beginning of drafting the new West Maui community plan. So that's with our long range division. We have a current planning division that processes permits for major applications. So anything from bed and breakfast and short term rental home permits to major special management area permits, uh, shoreline development, changes of zoning. We have a zoning administration and enforcement division that is responsible for reviewing other types of permits for zoning compliance. So we review building permits and subdivisions for zoning compliance. We issue zoning and flood confirmation forms to tell you what your zoning is. That's the division where you can come in and ask, can I do this on my property, or what can I do on my property? And that's the division that also has our zoning inspectors, so they do all of our land use enforcement. And lastly, we have the plan implementation division that tracks our long-range plans, like our community plans and the Maui Island plan, and they track the implementation of those plans. So they have all the implementing actions listed out and all the departments responsible for those and they keep in touch with the various departments on their status of implementation, and they work on the implementing actions that are assigned to the planning department to see that we implement the parts of the plans that are assigned to us. That is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot. Um, what do you do as director? I mean, you have these four different divisions. It seems like a lot. How do you manage? I am here late at night. <laughs> um, each division has a division chief, and we have a great senior management team. Um, and each of those divisions has sections that have supervisors, so it's, it's structured. And um, I spend most time interacting with the division chiefs, but then when there are issues from one of their frontline people, those often come to me. Um, anyone in the department's welcome to come into my office and talk to me at any time. Um, when things run smoothly and things work the way they're supposed to, I don't need to be involved, and that's great. But when there are problems or new issues or gray areas in our laws, then, um, then they come to me to get involved. Are there certain divisions that require more attention of yours than others? Yes. Um, the uh, Zoning Administration and Enforcement Division is really the front line. They're the ones who get to tell people yes or no when it comes to what they can do on their land. And that's a really tough job. Um, it's, uh, you know, we have so many wonderful people in our community and we do our best to help them. But unfortunately, we also have people who 
don't tell us the truth about what they're really doing. Um, they need to try to get away with things, and that makes our job pretty hard. So um, if we're not able to tell you yes to what you want to do, we should be able to say, well, you can't do that, but here is what you can do instead. And, and working with that division on that approach to customer service um, requires a lot of time. Um, our current division with major development projects, those are the ones that are in the paper a lot. Um, and so those uh, require a fair amount of analysis and interaction with staff. So those, those two uh, stand out to me. Now, at, at a certain point in this interview, I really want to get into the community plans, but right. I'm going to table that for now. Okay. Um, I want to take a, a big old step back and learn about you as an individual and what has informed you as a policymaker. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your life growing up? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut and Pennsylvania. Um, and in Pennsylvania, where I lived from when I was eight years old uh, through college, um, it's a small town that's actually not unlike Maui in a lot of ways. Um, small town in a rural area, but it's midway between Philadelphia and New York, um, less than an hour to Philadelphia, about an hour and a half to Manhattan. So it's very exposed, it's very educated, and you get a real mix of people. Um, we have hippies, we have bikers, we have um, retirees, so it's a real mix, but this wonderful little town um, that's surrounded by countryside. So it's a similar feel to Maui in a lot of ways. Um, after high school, I went to Vassar College in New York and graduated with a degree in political science. Then I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked on Capitol Hill for almost six years. And um, uh, had a wonderful education in D.C., um, but grew disenchanted with it because I could see how power corrupted people. I worked for the congressional leadership and um, Part of my office's job was doing orientation for newly elected congressmen. And that was really fun and exciting because you'd have these new people coming in all excited about getting elected to Congress and wanting to do all these good things. And within about six months, they wouldn't even acknowledge you in the hallway. Um, they just got so caught up in their power and being there and just lost all of that legitimate public service motivation that they had when they came in. And that was just really disheartening to me. I saw a lot of corruption and um, just the, the negative side of politics at that level. And so I left a really prominent job because that wasn't the environment that I wanted to stay in. Would you mind digging a little deeper into <coughs> that? You know, what do you mean when you say corruption and, and sort of the, the negative side of politics? Uh, corruption being seeing firsthand how campaign money um, influences decision makers. I mean, it is blatant. Um, and then the dark side being how people will manipulate others, even people who are considered their allies, for the certain outcome that they want. Um, and people just not being forthright, not being honest. Um, looking at their own personal gain rather than the greater good. Um, I mean, I'm not a saint or anything like that, um, 
but it's when the stakes are that high and you're in a, a public office, a position of trust, I, I, that's just, it, that wasn't the kind of environment I wanted to stay in in my professional career. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was too bad because it was a great job in many, many, many ways, but uh, yeah, it just, it, I didn't feel good being in that environment, contributing to that. Contributing to the success of that yeah. office, yeah. So, so after working in Congress, mm -hmm. what was your next step? <laughs> I took a real 180 and moved down to Florida, where a lot of my family lived, and got a job working in a law firm. Um, and then, I was in Jacksonville, Florida, which is on the St. Johns River, and um, there was an oil spill on the river. And a wildlife sanctuary was looking for volunteers to help wash oil spill birds. So I went up on the weekends to start volunteering, and I absolutely loved it. It was an hour drive each way from my house, and I'd be there for 10 or 12 hours, and I would be soaking wet and filthy and stinky, and I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And then a position on their staff opened up paying horrible money, um, <laughs> $275 a week, six days a week, 10-hour days, and I loved it. Um, and we went from you know, not just doing oil spill birds, but they had birds of prey who were injured or sick that we would rehab and release into the wild. So we had bald eagles and osprey and owls and great blue herons and cormorants and all sorts of wonderful birds. Other wildlife, we'd get squirrels and bear cubs and things like that too. But I, I loved it. Um, but that <laughs> predictably ran its course. That um, <laughs> was not sustainable for me. Um, and by that point, um, I was really missing my dad and stepmom who had moved to Maui about 10 years prior. Um, and so I left Florida and, and came to Maui. You, uh, I, I did a little bit of research on you reading your bio, and uh, in your bio you, you talk about your mom and your stepdad moving to Maui being one mm -hmm. of the, the reasons that brought you there. But one of the things you also mention is your grandfather, mm -hmm. who was a, a doctor, and he sparked your commitment to, to public service. Yeah. I, I thought that was such a, a great story, and I was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit for the listeners. Oh, he's, he was amazing. I could talk about him for days. Um, he was a retired doctor, and this was, gosh, he retired in the 70s, um, but even before he retired, when it was still in the 1960s, he and my grandmother had a travel bug, and they, my grandfather organized a group of physicians and their wives and found that for every 15 airline seats he booked, he'd get a free seat, and for every 15 hotel rooms he would book, he'd get a free hotel room. So he had these groups of doctors and their wives, so he and my grandmother could fly for free and stay for free. And all this was done, you know, correspondence and writing. He'd write to the airlines, write to the hotels, write to these um, foreign medical societies. And the medical societies in the countries they'd visit would organize seminars for these American doctors coming over. So these weren't, you know, they weren't going to Paris and London. They were going to Africa and... East Asia and places that Westerners just weren't going to. And so they traveled all over the world and would have these clinics for people. And villagers would come from miles around to see the American doctors and get, uh, get treatment and, and get uh, 
consultations. And he, he called this little group Medical Odysseys. <laughs> and they traveled, they did this for decades. Went all over the world, they visited 120 countries. Wow. Um, then when it got to the point where he couldn't do that level of traveling anymore, he um, started a facility in their town in Naples, Florida called the Senior Friendship Center. And he found there were others like him, retired doctors and nurses and dentists, um, who didn't want to completely retire, who would volunteer a couple days a week and give free medical screenings and, and treatments to indigent seniors. And they lobbied the state legislature to get limited medical licenses so they could all practice. They would get donated equipment from hospitals and other physicians when they were, you know, upscaling their equipment. The old stuff was perfectly good. They would donate it. So he started this senior friendship center in Naples, Florida, and it's still going on. He was the medical director there for years. And it was just an amazing thing that he did for the community. And it's, I don't it, it's just so inspirational to me that he could have easily retired and played golf every day, but that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to do more. He still had more to give. He still had more to do, and so he kept doing it. Do you imagine yourself ever retiring? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this job is a killer. <laughs> um, retiring, yes, but I wouldn't, uh, I would still be involved in things. I've served on a number of boards. Um, I could see serving on boards and going back to volunteering at the Humane Society or the East Maui Animal Refuge. I volunteered at the East Maui Animal Refuge for 10 years um, when I moved here. Um, I stopped doing that when my mom got sick, but um, things like that, they, I mean, you can't, nobody's one-dimensional, right? And so you need more to fill yourself out. So if I can stop working, if I get to a place financially where I can stop working, I wouldn't stop. I'd stop working for a paycheck, but I wouldn't stop. It sounds like you have a real heart for animals and wildlife and, oh, and taking do. care of them. I do. Uh, do you have any pets? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of pets do you have? Um, we have a dog and a cat, and um, my husband does construction, and so we have one dog because he goes to work with her every day, and if <laughs> he can't take the dog, he doesn't take the job. <laughs> wow. And we have a cat that thinks she's a dog, um, uh, but that's, I, I'm not home enough. I'd love to have, you know, a dozen pets, but I'm, I'm not home enough. My husband's not home enough. That wouldn't be to the pets. The fact that your husband is in construction and you work for, well, you're the director of the planning department, mm -hmm. uh, does that ever cause any tension? Does, does he ever kind of question your judgment <laughs> on certain decisions? We have a firewall. <laughs> <laughs> um, he'll ask general questions, but we really don't get into it at all. It, it's just so much easier that way. Um, and he, he's not licensed, he does owner-builder things, um, he's not a contractor, so, um, you know, he keeps it very small scale and, you know, so it's legitimate and he knows he has to be legitimate. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we try to keep that separate mm. to have a happy home life. <laughs> That's smart. That's very smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you said you moved to Maui in the mid-90s, what was it, 94? Yes. So yes. you've been here for a little while. Yeah. Um, 
I love to ask people about the changes that they've witnessed mm. in Maui as far as you know the culture, the, the visuals of it. Um, what have you seen change over your time here? The main change has been growth. I mean, it's that simple. Um, I remember the old Haleakala Highway. Um, I don't know when that was, I think it, that was after I moved here, but certainly when my dad and stepmom first moved here in 83. Um, it was the old, just simple, one lane each direction, Haleakala Highway. Um, and all the, the Maui Lani build out on the, uh, in the West Maui Mountains uh, wasn't there. The Lahaina Bypass wasn't there. Kuiheilani Highway wasn't there. Um, so yeah, growth, the roads are bigger. There, there's more development. Um, but that's, you know, the population of the world is growing. That's just reality. It's, you know, Maui certainly has many growing pains, um, but that's not unique to this place. Um, and in terms of the profile of the people, that has certainly changed. Um, it's much less local and Hawaiian than it was back then, and I'm Howie, I contributed to that, <laughs> so, um, uh, but it's, um, the pace is still the same, um, the food is still the same, so, you know, <laughs> important things haven't changed. Um, how was the transition professionally um, going from, from an East Coast setting to the Maui professional setting? What was that like for you? Um, one thing I notice is that I walk really fast. And it, could, <laughs> it could be because I'm short that I have to walk fast to keep up with people, but I just walk f and I, I think to myself that that is probably an East Coast thing. It's just a faster pace. You're higher. Even now, I walk fast. and. A lot of places here, people walk at a slower pace, but I don't. I drive fast too. <laughs> um, but when I got hired, when I uh, moved back to Maui, um, I started working for council services. They hired me as a legislative analyst. And I remember one of the questions I was asked, they were looking at my resume, oh, you've done all these big things in Washington, D.C. You know, working here, you'll be like, Putting up a scoreboard in a in a in a park, you know, what? How are you going to adjust to that change? And I said, it would be really nice to get something done, <laughs> 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 because my time in D.C. I mean, you would consider something an accomplishment if you got all the people to a meeting that you wanted to be there. Or one time, I did have an issue that I had worked on, debated on the House floor. That was a big success. I mean, forget getting a bill passed or like actually getting something really done. So the idea of coming here in this smaller environment where you could really, you know, put up a scoreboard in a park or change the law. I mean, that was like, wow, I can actually do things. That was exciting. That's, that is interesting um, that you've seen politics from that, that high federal level um, and you got that behind-the-scenes look at that, so you saw how the sausage is made for, yeah. <laughs> for the most disgusting analogy <laughs> I can think of. Um, and, and you're deeply involved in it on the local level. Um, with that interplay of, of how people relate with their politics, um, do you think Americans have it right? Do you, do you think, uh, you know, I say this because the national focus tends to be on the federal government. But in your experience, 
Do you think the federal government impacts us as much as we'd like to imagine? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think it does in terms of the, the tone or the attitude of the morality. Um, there is just a lot of uh, distrust and hypocrisy and um, uh, pessimism right now um, where and that's just I think at many levels of government but mostly federal and maybe that's just my personal observation um, whereas in prior times and I'm not talking one party or, or one uh, one uh, party in power um, it's just leadership in general Whereas in other years, it's been more optimistic and more open and uh, more positive. And I think that does trickle down um, because that's what you read in the paper. Those are the headlines. That's what you hear on the news, whether it's positive or negative. Bad things are always going to happen in our world, but the response to that can be an open, inclusive, optimistic one, or it can be a negative, divisive one. And I think that does trickle down. Um, on the local level, though, our local elections are nonpartisan, and I think that's great um, because you can just talk about issues. You're not, uh, you're not worried about alliances and the balance of power, at least at the county level, and I think that's great. Um, my husband's English, and so we get exposure to different systems, how things aren't working well for the prime minister, and so they resign and call for new elections. It's like, can you imagine that <laughs> happening here? Um, and just our fixation on two parties and mm. only two parties, where you have, you know, dozens of parties in other countries. I mean, generally it's a few major ones that, that uh, rise to the top, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of changes that would be great for our country, I think, at the federal level, but I don't even know how we, how we get moving in that direction. But locally, I think it's great that we don't have party affiliations. There's just a lot more openness, and we can talk more about issues. Mm. Sorry, um, I went off on a few tangents there, but... <laughs> no, it's good. That's what podcasts are for. Okay. That's, that's why we do audio, so we can have tangents, and this way people can just keep on driving in their cars and zone out during the tangents, and that's fine. Right. I enjoy it. Um, you know, since 1994... Um, I've only been on Maui for three years. In that very short period of time, it, to me it appears as though there's been more engagement with local politics. Um, is that an accurate assessment? Uh, you know, how have you seen the, the local engagement in politics over the course of your time here? Um, I, I agree with you that in the last few years there's been um, uh, a lot more engagement and I attribute that to social media the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but people being informed, there, there's nothing that, but good that can come from people being informed. Um, the important thing is that you try to learn the whole story and not just, you know, one, one thread um, that might have a certain, uh, just a certain point of view that excludes other points of view. Um, but it's great that people are informed. It's great that there are so many ways for people to be informed. 
but even so, there's still, um, you know, there's still a lot of people that we're not reaching. That when I say we, I mean county government, um, so that people really should have a better idea about what's going on. Um, there have always been what we would call the usual suspects, depending on the issue or depending on the area. You have a group of people who are really interested in that, and they stay involved in it, and they keep an eye on it until that issue runs its course, which is great. I mean, that keeps decision makers and policy makers on their toes. It knows that we're, it makes us know that we're accountable. Um, and now those usual suspects have a different profile because they're getting their different, they're getting their information a different way. Um, it's younger people, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and you see um, different makeup of people participating in public meetings. You see a, a, a much more varied cross-section of the community, um, which is also great. I mean, that's, we talked about the West Maui Community Plan. You want to talk about community plans a little bit more. That is our main goal, is trying to reach all segments of the community. So. Not everybody can come to meetings and participate, but as long as they know they have a way to stay in touch and to be involved if they want to be, um, I mean, that's critical. That's, that's what our government is about. And if we aren't hearing from everybody, then we're not going to be as successful as we could be. Mm. Um, before we get into the West Maui Community Plan, I wanted to ask you, um, in 2005, you became Deputy Director of and policy advisor for the Kaho'olawe Island Reserve Commission. Um, I read a quote that you said, no one goes to Kaho'olawe and returns unchanged. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your role in that position um, and what you mean by that quote. Oh, gosh. Um, Kaho'olawe is, is a sacred place. It's a very special place. Um, what changed for me in my time there was being able to really see and really understand what that place and its history means to Hawaiian people. Um, I, uh, years before, I danced hula with Auntie Nina Maxwell, and so I learned through her and through hula a little bit of Hawaiian culture and history. Um, I mean, she and Uncle Charlie are, just have so much to, to share, but in my limited time with them, you know, I learned what I could. But then going to Kaho'olawe and seeing Hawaiians connect to that place, many connecting with their Hawaiian culture and history for the first time, um, it's profound. It's, um, it's, I don't know if, um, it's not something I could relate to because I feel grounded to with who I am and connected to to my ancestry. Um, but I could see Hawaiians who weren't and who found that there, and just really giving them a sense of who they are and a sense of purpose. And it's just amazing to see that happen for people. Um, and then also the volunteers that go there and the work that they do and what they contribute to that place is so inspiring. 
just how much people have to give um, and how groups of people come together and work in an extremely harsh physical environment doing backbreaking work in hot, windy, dusty <laughs> surroundings and coming back and just loving it um, because they contributed to something bigger than they are. Um, being part of something that's bigger than you is, is um, I, I, nothing compares to that. I love it. <laughs> now, now we've learned a bit about your past, mm -hmm. uh, your experience. Let's step back into the present day. Um, is there an ordinary day for you? And if so, what does that look like? Oh, gosh. Um, an ordinary day. An ordinary day would probably be, um, well, we'll start with a Monday, because Mondays are probably more routine than any other day. Um, I, I usually get up early in the morning. I walk my dog, and the cat comes along, because the cat thinks it's a dog. <laughs> um, I read the paper. I go swim for a half hour. I get to work around 8 o'clock, usually by 8.30, but I try to be closer to 8. 9 o'clock, we have a senior staff meeting. So that's me and uh, Deputy Jordan Hart, our Private Secretary Avis, our four division chiefs, um, and our administrating, uh, administrative planning officer and our department personnel officer. And we go over major things that have happened the week before to bring everybody up to speed. We go through the calendar for the next two weeks so everyone knows what everyone's doing. And then if there are major issues going on, um, it's just the opportunity to talk story. I, I use them as my brain trust. So if there's a new issue that's come up, say, okay, you know, this is a problem. You know, what do you think we should do about it? I'll just bring up an easy, well, not an easy topic, but the hot topic, affordable housing. What should we do about affordable housing? And then we'll, we'd brainstorm and say, okay, we should put together this group of people and these are the issues. And so we, um, uh, it's just a, a brainstorming session for new issues that come along. And then, like I said, reviewing the past week, going over the calendar for the next two weeks. Um, we look and see what the council, what meetings the council has coming up. Um, if we've been requested to attend those meetings, who should go, what do we need to prep for. Um, and then I come back to my desk after that meeting and probably have 30 emails waiting for me <laughs> that I try to answer. Um, we get inquiries from the mayor's office, we get inquiries from other departments, um, inquiries from the public. Um, the things I have waiting for me, um, I have a few projects waiting for me, um, working with the mayor and with uh, formerly HCNS and A&B and now Mahi Pono at um, looking at lands the county might be interested in acquiring and trying to map those out and seeing what we might be able to um, uh, move into county ownership at some point. Um, we have uh, a handful of projects that we're reviewing. Um, I get staff reports for when we go to the Maui Planning Commission. We have staff reports and recommendations for all the projects that I need to review and sign if 
I can approve them or make edits and send them back if I don't. Um, I probably sign my name a hundred times a day on all different kinds of correspondence and requisitions. Um, and there are days that I am in meetings probably seven hours out of the day. Um, there are other days that maybe I just have one or two meetings and then I can get work done and get caught up on emails. So. It varies. It varies a lot, but um, Mondays always start with our uh, senior staff meeting, and that you know kind of sets the tone for the upcoming week. So we kind of know what we're in for um, for the next week or two. Was there any part of the job that surprised you that that you just kind of were <laughs> like, "Huh, I'm responsible for this"? <laughs> <laughs> well, I first started in 2011 as a deputy director. And um, as I mentioned before, I, I had worked for the Office of Council Services 15 years before that um, and worked on planning and land use issues. So I knew the planning department. I knew uh, a little bit about land use. Then I did, I worked in the private sector for a while and, and got much more involved with land use, but had interaction with the planning department. When I came in as deputy in 2011, I thought the department had probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 people. And I came in and there are 65 people. And I'm like, who are all these people? <laughs> what do they do? And that was a big surprise. Um, I knew coming in that I would be handling um, budget and personnel because that's what I did at the Koholave Commission and that was uh, typically a director or deputy handles those. So I knew I'd be handling those. Um, but the complexity of the issues that we handle has probably been the biggest surprise. Mm. Um, not the role and the duty so much, but um, with a staff this big and the number of things that we do, I described all of our divisions, um, the complexity is, is staggering. And each one of those issues is really important to somebody and often to many, many, many people. And so trying to prioritize, it's hard to prioritize because everything we do is important to somebody. Sometimes it might just be one applicant coming in for a building permit, or it could be a community plan that affects a whole region. But you, it's hard to prioritize because it all matters to at least somebody. Um, so the, the complexity and the importance of it um, were uh, were probably what struck me after uh, after I got to meet everybody on the staff, <laughs> all these new faces. Yeah. Now you brought up community plans again. Let's get into it. Let, let's, okay. What is a community plan? <laughs> let's go real basic. Work okay. from that that super high level. So, what is a community plan, and what is what is the purpose of it? Um, and and yeah, just. Explain to the layperson okay. how it all works. Okay. Well, any piece of land in the county has land use designations that tell you what it can be used for. Um, can that be a house? Can that be a hotel? Can that be an office? Um, so we have all of our existing development that you see. We know that we're going to grow. A community plan tells us where that growth should happen and what kind of growth should go where. So we have our existing development. We're gonna need more houses. 
We're going to need some more commercial to support those houses. We're going to need new schools to support those houses. We're going to need other public facilities to support those houses. Um, is it going to be houses or is it going to be apartments? Um, do we want any other kind of business? Do we want some industrial uses? Do we want hotel uses? And so the community plan identifies the vision of that community for the next 20 years. And so the community plan is much more than just a land use map, but I think explaining it with a land use map is the easiest way to start. So you look at a map, and that map identifies existing development. It's designated single family or multifamily or hotel or business or industrial or agriculture, or public, quasi-public. Okay, that's where we are now. Where do we want to see new residential? Where do we want to see new business? Where do we want to see new commercial? And you make those designations on the map. And so that says to our infrastructure departments, to water, wastewater, roads, to state, schools, transportation, this is where this area is going to grow. This is where we're going to need more water, more wastewater, more schools. Um, and so it's, it's the vision that, a commu that that community decides, where do you want to see growth? In West Maui, the indications we're getting so far is they don't want to see a whole lot of growth, except for workforce housing. Mm. Um, those are the indications we're getting so far. So you have that land use map that identifies the growth, but then you have the text that accompanies it that says what our goals are for different uh, different, uh, there are objectives, there are, we have all this terminology, goals, objectives, policies, actions, we're using the word intentions now, um, saying this is what we mean with this land use map. And the text talks about cultural resources, natural resources, sea level rise and climate change, resiliency, um, how we want communities to be connected with not only a roadway network, but bikeways, um, pedestrian ways, trails, um, opportunities for mass transit. Um, we're looking for um, sustainable infrastructure. So all of the, the policies and the putting into words what led to the creation of this map. Mm. That this is where we want to see growth, but we want to make sure cultural resources are protected. We want to make sure that we're adaptable for sea level rise. We want to make sure people can live close to where they work and go to school and go to the beach and have opportunities to get there without having to get into a car. Um, and that text is uh, results in implementing actions. I touched, about, touched on that a little bit before of the different departments that are responsible for making some of those things happen. Mm. Um, uh, we need this road to be widened. We need sidewalks added here. We want bikeways here. Um, we need um, to upgrade the water treatment plant here. Um, we need, obviously, <laughs> we need to make changes to the wastewater system and how wastewater is handled. Um, uh, so things like that, those become implementing actions. We need a new fire station. We need a new police station. 
all those things are spelled out and identified on the plan of where we want them to go. So that's what a community plan is. Um, Traditionally, how <coughs> excuse me, that was quite all right. Um, how well does the county follow the community plans? Not well at all. Is, is <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy answer. Is is there? Uh, an intent to, to follow them more closely in the future? Um, is, is there a difference in how we're developing them? You, you said that the community plans are updated to set the guidelines for the next 20 years. Right. So when was the last time the West Maui community plan was updated? Uh, I think it was 94. Okay. <coughs> so traditionally we didn't follow <laughs> that one so well. Um, is, are we going to see the same thing? We hope not. Um, and for a couple of reasons. Well, <clears throat> I'll first say that the community plans and the Maui Island plan, I'll talk about that in a second, could make things really easy for all county departments and the council and the mayor to run county government because it's an overarching plan that spells out those things I just described, where all the departments uh, are needed to serve these growth areas in our communities. And so if the departments could follow those plans and then when they go to the council with their next fiscal year's budget, they say, oh, here in the community plan it says we need a new police station, so here in my budget is the new police station. And so it all comes together. It could just be the one, you know, uh, the, an umbrella document for, for the budget and for this, the capital improvement program. That's how it's supposed to work. And it would be very easy for everybody if, if everybody participated. The problem is that in the past, the departments didn't all participate in the community plan update process. And so their language and, and actions in those community plans that are unrealistic mm. and that the departments really have no intention of doing for a variety of reasons and that the council wouldn't really have the intention of funding. And so you have these older community plans that didn't have that participation up front, and so they're not really implementing them because they're, they're unrealistic to begin with. We have the Maui Island plan now that was adopted in 2012, and that contains in it a lot of the things that the older community plans used to, but now it's in one document and it talks about all of the bigger policy level issues. We also have a countywide policy plan that uh, covers the same thing. So there's a lot in the Maui Island plan that doesn't need to be in the community plans. The mm. community plans can be more focused and more narrow. And Mayor Victorino and Managing Director Sandy Boz, as well as former Mayor Arakawa, really wants the departments to all participate in the community plan update process so that we will end up with community plans that have implementing actions that the departments can understand and can implement because they've been part of formulating it in the first place. Then when that plan gets adopted, the departments know what's in it, they know what the community wants, and they can follow it. So West Maui is the first Maui Island community plan to be updated since the Maui Island plan was adopted. And so we're hoping that this is going to be a new way. And so far the departments have been great. We have 
um, the schedule set up for the next six months for the Community Plan Advisory Committee with all the different departments plugged in to come at different meetings when their topics are talked about. So it looks like we're, we're on the right track to, to developing community plans that can really do what they're intended to do. Where is the community engagement at? So, so how many people have been providing input and have been involved in making this community plan? The community engagement process went on for more than a year um, in a number of different forums. Um, we created a website called wearemaui.org and that has um, all the information, everything we've done on the West Maui Community Plan um, so far on the, the open houses, um, uh, all different kinds of workshops, we did pop-up events. All of that is spelled out on the website. It's interactive. You can take surveys. You can post comments. Um, we've had tens of thousands of hits on the website. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming to our events. Um, it's been, our, our Long Range staff has done an amazing job. Um, we had um, a lot of challenges previously with the Molokai Community Plan. Um, I don't really want to get into that unless okay. you want to. We don't have that to was, get into that. That was very, uh, very difficult. Um, and a lot of the difficulty was not having established a good relationship with the community, establishing trust um, very early on. Um, I, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, um, but it's... Uh, you know, we did our best and it just, it, it didn't come together. We're doing everything we can for that not to happen with West Maui, which is why we spent so much time doing community engagement. We really needed to develop that trust and those relationships with the community. Um, it took a long time for people to understand that we weren't consultants, mm. that we weren't hired by the county to do this plan and then when it was finished we were packing our bags and leaving that no, we work for the county, we're here for the long haul, we're part of this community, this is our full-time job, this is what we do. And um, I mean, even that small thing was each, there were so many little turning points um, that for people to be like, oh, okay, you know, now I, you have something invested in this, you're not just getting your paycheck and leaving. So, um, We've really, we've really developed um, uh, a solid outreach program and just last week we had our first meeting of the Community Plan Advisory Committee, the CPAC. Um, the Community Plan Update process is we do our outreach, we come up with a framework for the CPAC, they fill in the meat of it, they have six months to do that and come up with their draft of the plan. Then it goes to the Maui Planning Commission who has six months and then it goes to the Maui County Council who has one year. So we're just one week into the CPAC's six-month review. Mm. And we have a one or two dozen meetings scheduled with them, each one on a different topic. Um, and as I mentioned, departments coming for the topics relevant to them. Um, and then from that, they will put together their their goals and their implementing actions for each of those departments and create the land use map. What community plan comes next? South Maui. 
South Maui. And um, when can people expect to, to be able to start participating and giving input with that? I think that when, well, a couple of things. Um, the timing of the community plans, we are way, way, way off schedule. Mm. And at the rate we're going, we can't just do one at a time. They can't be consecutive. They have to overlap in order for us to get to where we need to be. The council budgeted a total of $400,000 to us in this fiscal year that we want to devote to South Maui. For West Maui, we haven't spent any money except for getting the website up and running. Oh. So we asked for all this money and the council uh, supported us so that we can contract out some of the South Maui work. We still need to be involved in it. Um, we don't want to just hand the whole thing over and have it be a package thing because exactly for the reasons that West Maui was yeah. you know, wanting to know who are you. Um, so we do want to be heavily involved in the community engagement part. And then from there, um, we can definitely use consultants to um, cover the CPAC meetings and commission and council. But we would be, in the term I use, is looking over their shoulder. We're not just going to hand the whole thing off because we still need to be involved. We need to make sure that it's done right. But with that money, we can um, get some more help so we can have South Maui going at the same time West Maui is still going on. Um, we need to draft the RFPs to bring those consultants on board, so we've started looking at that. Um, and we can start uh, framing out our community engagement uh, for West Maui. Once CPAC, I, I mentioned CPAC started last week, once that's underway a little bit, then we can start doing our community engagement in South Maui. Okay. So, so hopefully we can soon. start that um, maybe by the end of the year, but early next year we would start engagement for South Maui. That's fast for government. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort, Great. Of, I'll, sort of fast. I'll, go, I'll, I'll agree. <laughs> well, well, that's the silver lining right there. Um so the community plans are certainly one thing that you've been working on lately. What are, what are some of your top concerns for Maui County, um, whether it's something that you're working on or not? Affordable housing, of course, um, is everyone's concern. Um, the mayor has <clears throat> a group, I'll call it a task force, with most of the departments represented and we um, review projects coming in um, at as early a stage as we can to flesh out any problems, so to, um, to help them go through the process as smoothly as possible. And then we also discuss various initiatives that we could take. So we're a participant in that. Um, <clears throat> um, and there, you know, of course, there are things the planning department can do. Where among the things that the task force is looking at is um, looking at land use entitlements of various properties. Could we, could the county initiate zone changes, for example, for properties to be redeveloped for housing? Mm. Um, you know, what what incentives can the county offer? Um, how can we uh, expedite a permit process for workforce housing projects? So. There are a number of things like that. But with affordable housing, that's a top priority for everybody. If a project comes in that has a significant affordable or workforce component, that goes to the top of the pile, and we move on that as fast as we can. <coughs> um, 
working with agricultural lands is another huge one. I mean, that's always where the pressure is for new development because the land is cheaper, but it's cheaper because it doesn't have the infrastructure serving it that it needs. Mm. Um, but there's also a call for affordable farm labor housing. Um, I heard Simon Russell talking at the Affordable Housing Committee meeting yesterday, and he was saying if we had more farmers, we'd have more farming. And we're not going to have more farmers if they can't afford to live here. And so looking into opportunities to make, uh, what can we do with our agricultural regulations to disincentivize gentlemen's estates and to incentivize real farming? Um, so that's, you know, that's a huge task, but there are small steps we can take that, that could help. What are, what are some of these small steps that you're thinking of? Um, well, looking at, um, <clears throat> there is a bill pending with council talking about um, being able to do cluster subdivisions in the agricultural district. Right now, our agricultural district allows only two dwellings per lot, no mm. matter the size of the lot. Um, there's a, a subdivision restriction that you can't just subdivide out a lot completely into two acre pieces. Um, but looking at how either being able to provide more um, housing on agricultural lots for agricultural workers or to be able to subdivide small agricultural lots um, for, for agricultural workers. So um, it, it will require more input from the agricultural community to see, okay, if we allow these things, are they really going to be occupied by farmers? Yeah. <laughs> um, if they're not, is that still okay? You know, is any housing good housing? Um, but, but farmers are getting priced off the land and priced out of housing, and we're not going to have agriculture if we can't figure out a way to make that work. So um, looking at our zoning code and the subdivision ordinance to allow um, more housing, whether they're subdivided lots or just um, additional dwellings on a single lot for ag workers. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, when you're looking at agricultural regulations, you have to concede that there's going to be some abuse. Mm. And we've gone through this working with the ag community on other things too, that sometimes you have to be able to stomach the abuse knowing that it's still going to make things easier for farmers because if you make it really restrictive to curb the abuse it's going to be harder for farmers so you you just have to go in with your eyes wide open saying okay we're going to allow these things to help farmers knowing that there are going to be some rotten apples who take advantage of it and manipulate it and use it for other purposes it's a really practical view <laughs> It is. It's, 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 it's very pragmatic. It's, it's, that's the, that's reality. Um, you know, so Lori Suhaku, mm -hmm. um, she, she did the presentation on the county's strategic plan for housing mm -hmm. yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, housing clearly, it, it rolls around in your area as well. Yes. Um, do you have any thoughts on the, the strategic plan or, or anything like that? Yeah. Um, I made some notes that are way over there on my desk somewhere. Um, 
A couple things jump to mind. One is, and everyone asks this question, and it's a fair question, and I don't know that we've answered it to the best of our ability yet, is there, there's a lot of entitled land out there, projects that have been approved but have never broken ground. Mm. Why is that? What are the impediments to these projects getting built? We just need to chase down the owners or the investors and say, okay, what's keeping you from doing this? Is there anything that the county can do to jumpstart this project? Because it's ready to go as far as the county's concerned. You know, what do you need to make this happen? Are there conditions on the project that make it not pencil out? Um, do you not have the money? Do you need a partner? You know, is there anything the county can do to help get that going? And if not, would you consider selling it to someone who wants to make it go? So that's one thing they talked about. You know, there, there's a lot of entitled land out there that's not going anywhere. So maybe we can get that going. Um, <coughs> another thing they talked about, <coughs> excuse me, was uh, right now we have uh, workforce housing requirements on new housing development and new hotel development. Which is fine. Certainly hotel development, you're going to build a new hotel, you're going to need employees, we need housing for that. Building new housing doesn't create a demand for housing. But there's a requirement on new housing development to provide housing. Mm. Like if you're going to build a 50 lot luxury subdivision, you need to build some affordables. Well, that 50 lot affordable subdivision doesn't directly generate the need for housing the way that like a hotel does. But you're building houses, so it, it makes sense to put that requirement there. We don't have a requirement on new commercial or industrial development. Many other places do. So if you're going to build a new commercial building, you're expecting there to be new businesses there. Those businesses and their employees are going to need housing. So putting an assessment on new commercial and industrial development so that they contribute to uh, the housing stock as well. That, that's interesting. So the way that you envision it, would, would they, they would acquire commercial land, com commercially zoned land. Um, would they also need to acquire residentially zoned land for, for the workforce housing that they would provide? So it would be two different plots or would they be able to, to do it in commercial zoning? What, what do you see? There are some commercial districts that allow multifamily or residential, so it could be on the same property. Um, it could be another, I mean, it's the same thing for a hotel. Mm. The hotel has to provide that housing somewhere. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's on site, sometimes it's not. Um, so same with commercial, it could be on site. They could acquire a different parcel. They're also, the way the system works now, and I think we should take another look at this too, is the ability for them to buy credits. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think credits get us anywhere. Housing gets us somewhere, but credits don't. So taking a look at how credits work. Um, or they can contribute to the affordable housing fund. You know, there are other ways to satisfy the requirement other than building units. But uh, we need, I think we should be We need the units. Kind of strict, yeah. Well. Money in the bank isn't going to put a roof over somebody's head. You know, we need that roof. Um, trying to think what else they mentioned yesterday. Um, but we're, we're working great with Lori and with Linda. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, it, because with well, touch upon 201H projects, the fast track affordable housing projects, um, 
they're doing a really good job of including the other departments in their review. That hasn't always happened in the past, um, where a 201H project would get scheduled for council consideration and we're just seeing it for the first time and don't really have a chance to comment. So the mayor's task force that I mentioned, we do early reviews with 201Hs and then Lori and Lindette Housing make sure that other departments um, are, are okay with the projects or if we have comments, do we want to see changes, um, making sure that by the time it gets to council, um, they've made enough modifications that we can all support it. So um, we're working really well with them. What, um, I'm, my primary target audience is realtors, okay. um, though this does go out to the general public as well. So. I'm sure that you get probably a lot more phone calls from realtors about planning department-related issues than I do, and I get a lot. <laughs> um, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there, there anything you want the realtors to know? Is, is there any question that you get a ton of that you just want to get it out there and, and hopefully cut off some of those phone calls and, mm -hmm. and complaints? Well, first of all, uh, while I really don't need any more phone calls or emails, I really appreciate realtors asking questions so that they know their product. That is so important because we hear from a lot of property owners and maybe they're the ones not telling us the truth because we never know. Oh, my realtor told me I could do this. Mm. And maybe they're lying, maybe the realtor did tell them that, but we feel really badly saying, no, you, you, you can't do that. <laughs> so knowing you know, whether you're representing a seller or a buyer, knowing what can be lawfully done on that property is really important. The first place to start would be finding out the zoning. And our zoning maps are available online on our website, so you can find the zoning for your property. Once you find the zoning, then you can go to the county code, which is also available on the county website, find the zoning, and that lists out what you can and cannot do. That should answer most of the basic questions. There are always going to be gray areas, so please, yes, check with us. Um, there are always nuances, so <clears throat> we appreciate your finding out. <clears throat> um, but yeah, those resources are available online, so um, check those, and then if you have questions after that, give us a call or send us an email. And just so people know, it's Title 19 of the Maui County Code, which is the, the zoning requirement. Yep. So if you do look it up, it's Title 19. Yeah, and you can just Google Maui County Code Title 19, and it'll come up, and then you um, just start familiarizing yourself with it. And um, you know, one of the, the frequent questions that, that I get is regarding the Ohana Bill mm -hmm. um, and rural zoning. Yes. Because there was a conflict with, with yes. state and local zoning. Um, could you tell us... What's up with that? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> um, the Ohana bill, uh, that's the one that allows two Ohanas on lots 7,500 square feet or larger, and, rather than one, which used to be the case, and then allows one Ohana on lots smaller than 7,500 square feet. Um, different lots are gonna have limitations, um, may not be able to benefit from it, but those that are able can have that additional unit. It also increased the size of Ohana's, the size of their decks, allow them to have garages now, allow them to have covered decks now, so lots of great things. In the rural district, that second Ohana is not going to apply, but all the other benefits of the Ohana bill do. 
the larger size, um, the car, the, the garage, the decks, all those other things will apply. Um, because State Rural says the density is one dwelling per half acre. I don't know how we've gotten away with two dwellings per half acre, but we're not going to be able to get three. So um, if your property is up to an acre in size, you can have one house, one ohana. If your property um, is, or actually I guess it's up to one and a half, once you get to one and a half acres and you get one house uh, under state law, you have uh, one house per half acre, you can have regular size dwellings. So it doesn't have to be limited to the Ohana. Great. So only up to a half acre, I'm not, ref I'm not stating this very clearly. If you're up to a half acre in size, or actually, <laughs> I'm confusing myself now. If you're up to an acre, you can have a house and an Ohana. And your Ohana is governed by the Ohana bill and its size and so forth. Once you get over an acre, then your second dwelling can be any size. You're allowed two dwellings per half acre. So once you get up to an acre, you can have two, and you're not limited by the Ohana bill. So the Ohana bill is really only, you know, only affects properties up to an acre in size. So you can have the larger Ohana. After that, for every half acre, you can have another full-size dwelling. And just to clarify, the most <coughs> common question I get, the Ohana bill, does it apply to ag zoning districts? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. <clears throat> and we did talk about, well, why don't we do the same for ag, for that second farm dwelling that's limited to 1,000 square feet, increase it to 1,250 or to 1,500. Um, I took that to the Ag Working Group, which is just one component of the Ag community, and they had a lot of different ideas about it. They weren't opposed to that necessarily, but they said, wow, it would be nice to have, if you're looking at 1,500 square feet, could we have two that are 7,500 square feet? And so it went all over the place. And so we came up with sort of a formula of you, it could be two dwellings that combined don't exceed, and then it could be based on the lot size. So mm. it got a little bit complicated. Um, I drafted a few things out and sent it back to them, so they're taking a look. Um, I'll get some feedback from them, and then I'll take it out to others um, in the ag community and see what they think. And this ties back a little bit to the ag worker uh, housing that I was talking about before. Um, and then, you know, if we have some consensus among these different um, parts of the ag community, then um, we'd probably have a single public meeting and then um, take the bill out to the commissions for review. Oh, excellent. Now, um, you've been exceedingly generous with your time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, I want to wrap up. I don't want to take advantage too much, uh, but let's finish off with a few cool-down questions. Okay. These are, these are a little more fun, a little less thoughtful. Um, first off, what book would you recommend? Oh, boy. Um, Gentleman from Moscow. Oh, what's that? Um, 
the author, I believe, is Amor Tolls. Um, it's about a, uh, in the era of the Russian Revolution, um, a Russian uh, aristocrat gets put under house arrest in a fancy hotel in Moscow, and just how he lives out his life and the people that he meets and the relationships he develops. It's just, a, it's a wonderful novel. Cool. All right. What is guaranteed to make you smile? <laughs> uh, my dog. Your dog. Rosie. Rosie. That's an adorable name for a dog. My brother had a German Shepherd named Rosie. Oh. Yeah. And that, that's another good book. We got that from a book called The Rosie Project. That's oh. another good book. <laughs> the Rosie Project. Um, what goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? Oh my gosh. Um, I need to uh, find better ways to decompress after work. That's It stays with me for longer than I want it to when I leave the office. <laughs> I think many of us can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. What is something that you learned recently? Mm. Uh, my husband and I just took a vacation. Um, it was the first vacation I had taken in like a year, so it was badly needed. Among the places we visited was Charleston, North Carolina, and we went to a place called the Old Slave Mart. Um, and this was just striking to me that um, in the era of slavery, well, two things were striking. First of all, the people who were taken from Africa um, were taken to three destinations, the United States, the Caribbean, and South America. South America by far um, brought in the greatest number of people to enslave. Next was the Caribbean, then the United States was last, the colonies were last. So um, I didn't realize how pervasive slavery was. And a total of 12 million people were taken from Africa in the era of slavery. That blew me away. That is a rough fact. That's not really a cool down question, but that uh, I, I was blown away to learn those things. I mean, it's, it's an important historical yeah. piece of information. Yeah. Um, ooh. <laughs> um, all right, moving on. What is one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening? If there is an issue that you care about, learn about it and get involved because the people in government um, need to hear from you. That is a perfect place to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this. Thank and you, Jason. Hopefully we can do this again. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.